our series in the book of Hebrews. That series is entitled, Christ is Greater Than All. Christ is Greater Than All. What a, what a great thing to be thinking about this morning, Christ's greatness, the fact that he is greater than all. And this morning, I have the privilege of preaching about his word, really, the word of God, the word of God. So please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, I'm going to be reading to you from verses 12 and 13. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Let me just say this, as you're turning in your Bibles, I pray you have a Bible. We... I have told, instructed the folks back in the back not to put the scriptures on the screen, at least when I'm preaching. Uh, and you may be thinking, well, why are you doing that? Here's why I'm doing that. I think God wants you to interact with your scriptures that are in your hands right now. And so hopefully you don't see this as being mean on my part or un- unfeeling towards you. If you're a guest, I apologize. We do have some Bibles that you can have. And, and if you're seated next to someone that has a Bible, just look on with them. But But I I want you to be interacting with God's word, not a screen. I I want you to interact with God's word to you this morning. I am going to be used to preach that word, but God's speaking to you this morning. And he's speaking to you through his word. And and I want you to grab it and take it. I'd love every eye to be looking at a Bible right now. Please. Yours or someone next to you. Not because I'm anything but because he's God and this is his word. Let's respect it. Let's honor it. Let's honor him and respect him. So reading now from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Oh my, folks. If that isn't powerful, I don't know what is. That's a powerful verse right there. Verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Oh God, I pray as only you can do, come with your Holy Spirit, make this a holy moment. Take hearts that are frivolous, and, 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 and hiding from you and hearts that are mocking you and grab them. Put them in a chokehold, oh God, so that you might ultimately save them and direct their attention to you. Mighty God, fill this place, fill our hearts. May your word give us life, give us warning. May your word cause us to tremble and to shout. May your word be the thing that we love because we love you and it's your voice. God, only you could do that. But I pray you do it this morning. Through this simple servant sermon from your very simple servant. Oh God, anoint my, my lips, my tongue to speak your word. As you would want it spoken in Jesus' name. Amen. Now guys, it doesn't take a genius to figure out the theme of this, of this passage. It really doesn't. It does not take a genius to figure out the theme of this passage. It's really contained in both verses. The theme, the propositional statement of this sermon is very clear. It's, it's, verse, it's verse 12. Consider the power of God's word. Consider the power of God's word. And verse 13. And the inescapability of his judgment. Consider 
the power of God's word and the inescapability of his judgment. And you can put that up, the, the prop. I am changing things up a little bit on you. Thanks, Marcy. I told you we were going to surf on the wave of Al's brain waves. So it's going to be, there we go. So what, what is this passage about? Don't you see it? I mean, I mean, look at it. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. Consider the power of God's word. And then look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight. We move in verse 12 from God's word to verse 13 to God himself. And so we move to, to being exposed, naked, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what's the theme of this message? What is, the th- what is God's word to you this morning? Here's God's word to you this morning. Please consider the power of my word coming right at you today. And please consider the inescapability of my judgment. I'm going to judge you according to my powerful word. So you might be asking yourself, okay, Al, now that you've scared us, <laughs> why should we consider the power of God's word? Why should we consider the inescapability of his judgment? That seems to be hanging there by itself. Verses 12 and 13 seem to just be hanging there by themselves. Well, they're not. Remember, this, this word, this, this book of Hebrews, was a sermonic letter. It, it, it was meant to be read, actually it was meant to be preached at one time. So if you were a Hebrew Christian back in the first century, and you were seated there, I would come in and I would read this whole letter to you right now. So if I did that, what you would find out is that verses 12 and 13 form the very end of a large segment in the sermon that began with verse 7 of chapter 3. But see, we preach this section in three different sermons. I preached chapter 3, verses 7, to the end of the chapter two weeks ago, and then Corey last week preached chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But if you were seated here listening to this sermon, 3, 7 to 4, 13 is one segment. It's one, it's one message. So 4, 13, 12 and 13 doesn't hang out there by itself. 4, 12, and 13 has to be linked to 3, 7 through 4, 11. And it's linked very, very much so through that first word we see in chapter 4, verse 12, 4. See that word 4? That word links together 4, 12, and 13, the power of God's word, the inescapability of his judgment, with something that came before it, and that something is in verse 11. So look at 4, 11. Look at 4, 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now verse 12. For, for, it's the Greek word gar. It's a conjunction. It's meant to join two things. And what is it joined here? Listen, what's joined here is God's rest, which we saw in verse 11, strive to enter God's rest, and God's word, which we see now in verses 12 and 13. So if, 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 this, if you were... Getting the sermon, you would be getting a sermon here about God's rest and God's word. This morning, you're going to get the God's word part of it. But I've got to talk to you about God's rest for a moment. Do you understand that? Because they go together. So I want you to get the context. I want you to get the context of why we're to consider the power of God's word and the inescapability of his judgment. And the context is God's rest. God's rest. Now, there's no time for me to read to you 3.7 to 4.11. 
But if I were to read it to you, and if I were to, to, to be preaching this message, I would have already brought you to a certain point, and you would already understand God's rest. And what is God's rest? God's rest is God restoring to us the glory and the honor that Adam and Eve had in the garden before the fall. How do you get that, Al? Okay, I will direct your attention briefly to Hebrews 2. Just go to Hebrews 2, verse 7. I preached this one three or four weeks ago. Hebrews 2, 3, uh, 2, 7 and 8. And you made him, man, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him, man, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his, man's feet. God's rest, guys. Listen, God's rest is what God celebrated on the seventh day of creation. We see that in Hebrews 4.4, which is what Corey preached last week. When it says in Hebrews 4.4, that he, he, God says, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in verse 5 in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. It speaks of this seventh day rest. Okay, so what is God's rest? Here's what this is saying. When God created the earth, on the seventh day he rested. And on that seventh day that he rested, he invited Adam and Eve to come and join his rest. He says, come and join my rest, and you are going to rule over all this creation that I made. It was gonna, you're going to have dominion over it. That's what we read in, in uh, Psalm 8, back in, in Hebrews 2, 6, and 7, and 8. You're going you're gonna to rule all my creation. You're going to have dominion of all my creation, and I will rule you. Adam and Eve had rest. They had paradise. They had everything you could ever want. Fellowship with God, ruling his creation under his authority. Buddy, they had rest, and it was an eternal rest. God said, you're going to live forever and ever and ever. But that rest had a condition. What was the condition? Obey me. Because there's one tree in this garden that you simply cannot touch and you cannot eat. And the day you eat of it, you're going to die. And Adam and Eve said, you know what, God? Your rest isn't good enough. I'm going to go create my own rest. And we've been doing that ever since. And Adam and Eve said, I'm going to go my own way. So they rebelled and they took that fruit. They ate it. That day they died. And we died with them. That day they forfeited the rest of God. And mankind has been restless ever since. But God in his mercy. But God in his mercy. Do you hear that? Right after they did that. He said, I'm going to restore the rest to you. And the whole Bible, this entire beautiful, wonderful word of God, from the beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation, is a story of God restoring the rest that Adam and Eve had originally in the garden, that God originally intended for mankind to receive glory and honor and rule everything under God's authority. Ah, that excites me. That's why we're to consider the power of God's word and the inescapability of his judgment. Because that purpose, striving to enter into God's rest that 4.11 speaks of, that, that is the context for this. This is a great sermon. This book of Hebrews is a great sermon. Read it today. I just want to read one more section back in Hebrews 2. 
Here's the good news, guys. That when we forfeited our rest, God said, I'm going to give it back to you. And Jesus came to win back and win the rest that God originally had for mankind, but we forfeited through our rebellion. And in Hebrews 2, 8, it says this. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, now the, the him here switches to Jesus. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him, Jesus, for a little while w- was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Jesus crowned, look at this, crowned with glory and honor. We threw our crown down when Adam and Eve sinned and forfeited the glory and honor and forfeited the rest of God. Jesus came and picked it up and he won the crown back. Because of the suffering of death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. See, right after that, he launches into this whole section of now strive to enter into the rest that Jesus won for you by winning back for you the glory and honor that God originally had for you. Do you know that one day, when he comes back, we're going to rule and reign under his authority, his creation again? Do you understand that? That's why, that's why angels floating and playing harps on a cloud is so bogus. I mean, God has something for you, buddy. God's made you a leader in industry. And that, that is just a taste of what he's going to restore to you eventually, eternally. He, you forfeited the eternal rest of God. Jesus won it back for you. And one day you'll have eternal life, not strumming a harp, but ruling and reigning over his creation, but under his authority. Now, now, chapter 4, verse 11 makes sense, doesn't it? Chapter 4, verse 11 makes sense. Let us, therefore, strive to enter that rest. It's a rest that we cannot create. It's a rest that you cannot buy. I don't care how many Disney vacations you plan. I don't care how many cruises you take. I don't care how many times you go to the mountains. I don't care how much money you try to make, how much retirement security you try to get. Mankind, inessibly, wants to recreate the rest of God. You can't do it. You can't do it. Disney's having a banner year in a down economy. Why? Because in the hearts of man, there's a desire for rest. And idolatrously, they try to recreate it apart from God. Can't be done. But Hebrews 4.11 says, strive to enter that rest. What rest? The rest Jesus won for you. The rest you can't create, you can't earn, you can't buy, but you can receive by faith. Now that delivers us to this prop. It delivers us to verses 12 and 13. So therefore, consider the power of God's word. Pardon the pun here. It's a two-edged sword. We're going to talk about that in a moment. I mean, that, you, better go, you better strive for that rest because God's word is powerful. And God's judgment is inescapable. But it's, but it's also, hey, God's word is the very power that will help you cons- strive to enter into that rest. Do you see that? So what I'm trying to say here, what I think Scripture is saying is that this prop is not just hanging out there all by itself. It is, it is connected to the command to strive to enter the rest of God which he gave us in Christ. Now, the first point, the first point, consider the power of God's word. And I'd like to give you an illustration to help you to help you try to understand about this power of God's word. Several years ago, I had surgery on my right knee. It's about 11 years ago. A right knee that had been destroyed through some things that I experienced in the military. And, and, and so I, I can remember when, when it first happened, when my knee was first messed up, I rejected surgery. 
It was, it was done in the 80s. And I chose rather therapy. But, but after about 20 years, I realized that my knee was going to have no rest and my knee was not going to get healed unless I had surgery. So I went to the doctor and uh, first thing the doctor did was take an x-ray of my knee and he showed me the x-ray and he says, here's the damage to your right knee. Yeah, there it is. No wonder it hurts. No wonder it buckles every time I try to put pressure on it. And then he described to me the surgery, the knife that would be used to bring healing and take care of the damage to my right knee. And then he looked at me and he said, do you want, it, do you want me to do it? And I had to make a decision right there. Do I trust this surgeon? Do I trust this surgeon? I mean, I mean, ultimately, guys, what I had to do is I took a look at the x-ray, as I took a look at the knife, and as I took a look at the surgeon, I had to say, do I believe in order to receive the good of this surgery? And in many ways, the power of God's word, that, that, that reflects the power of God's word. You see, God's word, first of all, is an x-ray. God's word is what tells me that, that, that I have forfeited God's rest and that I'm, I'm a sinner and I'm in trouble. It's an x-ray. It shows me my damaged heart, not my damaged knee, but my damaged heart. But also in this text, God's word is his knife, this two-edged sword. It is the instrument that will be wielded by the surgeon who is God himself to do the surgery on my heart to restore the rest and enable me to strive to enter into that rest. You see, that's why. That's why we must urgently consider the power of God's word and the inescapability of his judgment. Friends, that is meant to be the means and the motivation for you and for me to make every effort to enter into this rest that's been given to us. And I just want to give you one more personal illustration before we start looking at this power of God's word and this inescapability of his judgment. This last week, I experienced a significant trial of faith. And, and let me see if I can couch it in the same terms that actually our text uses earlier. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 4 and in Hebrews 3, the author, the preacher here, uses an illustration to illustrate unbelief which keeps us from God's rest. He used this illustration of when Israel was camped in the wilderness and God told them to go take the promised land. And so he said, send 12 uh, spies out. And they sent these 12 spies out and the 12 spies saw that the land was great, which is currently Israel, the promised land. But there were giants there. And so when the 12 spies came back, 10 of them said, it's a great land, but it won't work. These giants are going to squash us. As a matter of fact, we feel like grasshoppers in their eyes. And this week, I was feeling like a grasshopper in the eyes of the giants that God was calling me to go conquer. I was, I, I was tempted severely to fall by the same disobedience of Israel, which is actually a sermon illustration that the preacher in Hebrews uses. I was tempted to fall by the same disobedience and say, you know what, God, you can't do it. Giants are bigger than me. I'm a grasshopper. I don't believe you. I'm not going in. But thanks be to God, because of the power of God's word, I was studying this very passage to preach to you this morning as this temptation hit me square in the face. And the power of God's word and the inescapability of his judgment, it gave me the ability 
to strive to enter into his rest. It's a fight of faith. It's a rest of faith. It's an active rest. And it gave me the grace to enter in as well as my friends who were helping me apply this word. And some of you this morning, listen, when God penned this scripture, he had me in mind. He had my struggle this last week in mind. And he has you in mind. There may be some of you that are telling me, Al, there are giants that God is calling me to conquer and I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm a grasshopper in their eyes. Friends, God wrote this word. God inspired this word to be written so that you might consider the power of God's word. And that consideration would give you the strength to strive to enter into his rest. God's word comes to us like it came to Israel in the desert. And we have the same choice. Enter into God's rest through faith and striving by faith into that word or forfeit God's rest through unbelief. Friends, let us enter through the power of God's word. So let's look at the power of God's word. Point 1A. Consider the power of God's word. God's word is living and active. Do you see that? Back to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and active. Friends, God's word is living. It's a living word. Why? Because God's a living God. Let me give you a quick biblical illustration. Go back to Hebrews 3.12. In the sermon in Hebrews 3.12, he's, he's warning these guys and he says this. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Friends, I was tempted last week, this last week, to have an evil, unbelieving heart. And this, this preacher is preaching to me, take care, Pino. Do not have an evil, unbelieving heart like Israel did, leading you to fall away from whom? From whom? The living God. So therefore, when it says here that God's word, back to Hebrews 4.12, is living, it's because God is living. God's word. Listen, this isn't the word about God, guys. This isn't like God's word. Oh, this is a word about God. This is some knowledge about God. No, 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 no. This is God's very word, his voice. Remember earlier in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, as the Holy Spirit says. And then all through Hebrews 3 and 4, you have this phrase over and over. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. Al, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts in Miami Lakes. Church, when you hear his voice, God's word is his voice. It is living. It's not dead. It gives you life. It it expresses his living character. Is God's word living to you this morning? If it's not, then you're the one that's dead, not God's word. I appeal to you, I cry out to you by the mercies of God that you would see that God's word, it's living. You would consider its power. It will give you life. We just read about that in Ephesians 2, 4, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. You know how God makes you alive, friend? Listen, if you're sitting here dead to God, and many of you are, some of you are, and, and all of us have dead hearts in our dead parts in our heart to God. The very word I'm preaching to you will make you alive. This is, this is serious stuff. This is dynamite, truly. <laughs> you understand that? All right, it's living, it's active. One author said it this way. He said it this way. God's word. The gospel 
is like a lion. All the preacher has to do is open the cage and get out of the way. Friends, I'm opening the cage right now. It's between you and God. You chose to come, and I'm glad you did. Now the word is coming after you. Not to kill you, maybe to kill something in you, but to give you life. I'm not trying to mix metaphors, but Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember Jesus says, the word was with God, the word was God. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. Listen, God's word is eternal. God's word is eternal. No time to look at that passage. We've got to move on. Next, God's word is active. Go back to Hebrews 4.12. Look at that passage. Study it with me. Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and active. This word active in the Greek can also be translated effective. Effective. Here we have the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, the effectiveness of Scripture. Scripture is effective. Scripture itself is effective and powerful to do what? To accomplish God's purpose. The Word of God is living and active. That means the Word of God is effective, effective to do what? To do what God wants it to do. Jot this down. Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 55, verse 11. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be, this is God speaking, that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I see it. Some of you are thinking, God, God's word is not effective. I haven't changed. Listen, it's God, God's word's effective. It's powerful. It's living. It's active. God's word is God on the move. It's God working. The sufficiency of Scripture, all I need to do is stand here and read this to you, and that will affect you. God's given me a gift of teaching, and I'm employing it by His grace, but this Word is the power, not me. The power is not in the preacher, it's in the Word. I love this quote from Martin Luther. Martin Luther was used by God to confront the papacy, the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s, which had fallen into terrible, terrible uh, sin and heresy. And this this Roman Catholic Church was powerful back then. It wielded the sword with the government to kill you, as well as a religious power. Listen to this quote from Luther. At the height of the Reformation, when his life was in danger, when it was one man seemingly against the whole papacy and nations and empires, listen to what Luther wrote. I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And when and when, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Friends, stop looking at yourself. Don't even look at me. Listen to God's word. Consider the power of God's word. It's effectual. It will change us. It will accomplish God's will in us. It will enable you to strive to enter God's rest. I know you're tired. I'm tired too. But God's word gives me the strength. My hope is in the effectiveness and sufficiency of scripture, not in my power. God's word gets the job done in our lives. It accomplishes what God desires for it to do, both in history, Martin Luther, and in my little life today. Now, here's the question for you. What effect is God's word having on your life? How are you affected by this passage right now? Is it affecting you? Do do you go and talk about it at lunch? Do you value God's word? Do you talk about it during the week? Oh, friends, please do, because God's word is sharp. Look at now, back at our text in Hebrews 4, verse 12. 
sharper than any two-edged sword. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Have you ever asked yourself a question, why in the world is he comparing the word of God to a two-edged sword? Why? Well, the answer lies in the very illustration I gave you from my own personal life, which I borrowed from the author, the preacher of Hebrews, when he was using Israel in the wilderness as an illustration of unbelief, as the people who were not able to enter God's rest because of their unbelief. And let me just inform you a little bit, review for you a little bit this illustration. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 4, 11, there's a lot of quotes from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 is referencing something that happened in Numbers 14. And what it's referencing is this. God brings Israel up to the promised land. The 12 12, uh, spies are sent in. They come back and 10 of them say, we can't do it. All of Israel agrees with the 10. And they fail to enter the promised land. And we read in, in Hebrews 3 several times it says this. So God swore in his wrath they wouldn't go in. So you got a million people saying, no, no, we won't go. And God says, I swear you will not enter in. And they go, wait a second. That was a good thing. We blew it. So you know what they did? They said, okay, God, forget you. We're going to go ahead and go in without you. Oh, bad move. (laughs) So what we see in scripture is when they went to go in without God, listen now, the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites slayed them, laid them low, killed them. The reader of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying, God's word is like that sword. Do not mess with the word of God. It is the instrument of God's judgment. Now, I I hear you, man. This is both warning, you better strive to enter his rest, but it's also help. Because see, the very sword that killed the Israelites in the desert is the same sword that can penetrate my hard heart. You know, we see all these movies with the guys with the great, you know, all these with the swords and they're doing this and they're doing that and they can cut through cars and cement and walls and who knows what. But listen, nothing compares to God's word. God's word can cut right through your hard heart now. Whew. That's my hope because my heart can get pretty hard sometimes and it just cuts right through it, man. Like, like a warm knife through butter. Whew. That's why he uses this metaphor of a sword. God is reminding us that his word is his instrument of judging the nations, and his word is like a sword in his mouth. Oh, friends, the word of God is the sword of the spirit. But this one, these next passages, they're they're even better. They're even better. It's the word of God like a two-edged sword that's in the mouth of Jesus when he comes at the end of time to execute God's judgments. That's content. That idea is right here in our passage. Turn, turn with me to Revelation 1, verse 16. <clears throat> Revelation 1, verse 16. And it says this. <clears throat> it's speaking of Jesus here. In his right hand, Revelation 1, 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came what? A sharp, a sharp, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining and full of strength. Oh, Jesus is coming, and he's coming with a two-edged sword, and it's the sword of God's word. It is God's word on his tongue that will accomplish God's will. Look at Revelation 2.12, and to the angel, to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Now Jesus is going to be speaking to his church here. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, the words of him, of Jesus, who has what? A sharp two-edged sword. 
That's in Revelation 2.12. And then jump all the way back to Revelation 19.5. Revelation 19.5. Revelation 19.5. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. A sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Oh, friend, Jesus is coming. And with this sharp sword in his mouth, he's going to actually strike down nations. He's going to war against everybody that does not believe his word. That warning has got to get your attention this morning. I can't keep you from that. It's inescapable. Consider the power of God's word. Consider the inescapability of his judgment. He's coming and the word of God is in his mouth and it will strike you down if you do not submit to it today. Listen, if the, if, the, if the preacher of Hebrews were here right now, if we were transported back to A.D. 60-something and we heard this sermon, he'd be preaching it with this power and strength because the Hebrew Christians back then were thinking of going back. They were doubting God, like Alpino was this last week. And this sermon comes to help them, comes to help you and me. And then finally, he, Revelation 19.21. And the rest were slain by what? By the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Oh, friends. Oh, friends, consider that God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. This is God's sword. It is symbolic of God's power through his word to examine us, to judge us, and if necessary, to destroy the guilty. But God's word is also piercing. Point 1C. We're still considering the power of God's word. That consideration is going to help us to strive to enter his rest. It's going to give us the power to do so. But look, God's word is piercing. God's word pierces us to our core. That's what it says there. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Listen, this is simply poetic language, friends, that states the power of God's word to cut to our very soul. I pray it's cutting to your soul right now. And God's word that brings us conviction. When God wills it, God's word will pierce anyone. George Woodfield, that great 18th century evangelist, was being hounded and persecuted by a group of detractors. They would deride and ridicule his work. They would mock him right to his face when he was preaching. On one occasion, one of them, a man named Thorpe, was mimicking Whitfield to his cronies. He was like mocking Whitfield's sermon, delivering it with brilliant accuracy. He was perfectly imitating Whitfield's tone and his facial expressions when all of a sudden, he himself was so pierced that he sat down and was converted on the spot. (laughs) Mr. Thorpe went on to become a prominent Christian leader in the city of Bristol. Thorpe was a nasty man. And he was doing a very nasty deed. But in his nastiness, he was far ahead of some of you because he was hearing and interacting with God's word. Nothing would have happened if he had stopped his ears and refused to listen. But he did listen. Now for the wrong reasons. And God's word, which is living and active and effectual and powerful and a two-edged sword and piercing, it pierced this man. God's word and God's time will pierce your hard heart, friend. Don't give up. Keep exposing yourself to it. God's word will pierce the hearts of your unbelieving children, your extended family members, your co-workers, your neighbors, even your enemies. God's word pierces us. Listen, this word piercing, it has this idea of a missile. Now, you know me, I like military stuff, right? So I'm thinking immediately missile. I'm thinking Libya. I'm thinking 112 Tomahawk cruise missiles were launched at Libya this weekend, okay? Don't judge me, okay? It's my only sin here. And I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. 
God's word's like a missile. And then I started thinking, well, what about those tomahawk missiles? I read up on them. Do you know that a tomahawk missile has a range of over 650 miles and can be accurate to greater than 10 meters, 30 feet? Actually, I read this one guy and he said, shot from about 650 miles, a tomahawk missile can hit a very small target. Guys, that is like a tomahawk missile cruise missile being fired from Atlanta and coming right through my single car garage door. Yeah, that's right. God's word is God's tomahawk missile launched from the beginning of time and it's heading for your garage door. You can't escape it. The guys in those air defense batteries in Libya had no idea it was coming and could not escape it. They typed in the coordinates. They pushed the button. From 650 miles away, it was launched. And probably about an hour later, they were gone. No sound. No warning. Oh, please, God's word's coming to you. And you can't stop it. And it's either going to destroy the hardness of your heart and give you life now Or it's going to judge you to eternal damnation then. Oh, if you're seated here, listen. Let it hit now. One D. God's word discerns the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Do you see that? The last little phrase there of verse 12. And discerning of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Listen, friends, all this means is this. God's word is that x-ray I got on my knee, okay? God's word, it, can, it looks right through you. It knows exactly what you're thinking, what you want, what you desire. It knows what you desired yesterday. It, know, it goes to the very core of your being. That's God's word. That's its power. It gets to the radical center of our lives. James 1, 23 and 24 says that God's word is a mirror. It's that x-ray. It's that mirror. Whoa! I didn't know I looked like that. Yes, you do. It will judge you. And you cannot escape that judgment. So point two. Second point of this message. Consider the inescapability of God's judgment. Here, my friend, I am very grateful to the work of Kent Hughes. I borrowed heavily from his commentary on Hebrews. Excellent pastoral commentary. And, and, and what we realize when we move from verse 12, we move from God's word to verse 13, God himself. Do you see that? Look at verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, not its sight, his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we move from God's word to God himself. God powerfully searches us. He he exposes us. Nothing is hidden from God's word, my friends. He sees everything. And that is very discomforting to those of us who want to avert his gaze. You might be able to avert my gaze this morning. You could just stop coming. Or even when I preach, you kind of bow your head when I look at you. It's so funny. Some people do that. Oh, he's looking at me. <clears throat> but, but can I tell you something? Listen carefully. You won't be able to avert God's gaze. One of the words here, the word that, that says exposed, that Greek word, here's the range of meaning for that word. It has this range of meaning. It, it has the meaning of grabbing 
the neck, exposing the neck like you would to a sacrificial animal right before it's going to get the knife. It has the meaning, that word exposed in the Greek, used in Greek literature of that time, has the meaning of a wrestler grabbing you by the neck and rendering you helpless. And it has the meaning of when a a prisoner who's been convicted of a crime worthy of execution is being marched to the gallows to be executed. This word exposed would describe what they would do when they would take a knife and put it right underneath his chin so that he couldn't bow his head in shame. But he had to keep his head up and look in, in shame and gaze at all the people he had sinned against. God has you by the neck. And you cannot avert his gaze. His judgment is inescapable, friend. That's what this passage teaches. And it is very terrifying for those of you who think you can avoid God's gaze. You think you're avoiding it now? You think that you're getting away with it now? You think this is all ridiculous? You think that God's not really real? But God will uncover you. He will uncover all of us. He will expose us. He will look us in the eyes. He will grip us. We will be totally vulnerable. We will be totally helpless. We will be laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We will stand and we will give an account. We will Our, our, little, our little games and our pouting and our attitudes will not suffice. Our lies and our hypocrisy today will not suffice. We will stand with the knife underneath our chin. We will stand in the grip of a wrestler who is rendering us helpless, and we will answer to God. So strive to enter into his rest right now. Strive to enter his rest right now. There's a quote by Peter T. O'Brien in his outstanding commentary on Hebrews that I'd like to read as I bring this to a conclusion. The penetrating power of God's word renders every creature totally exposed and defenseless in the presence of the God to whom we must render an account for our lives. Friends, imagine yourself exposed, naked, helpless, in God's arms, in God's hands. God is searching you. He's looking you into your eyes. So where are you going to go for help? What rest are you going to create to get yourself out of this one? One place to go. And that's where we're going to go next week. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Jesus, my great high priest. Our passage this week delivers us to the encouragement of the hope of a great high priest, but it also forms the end of the warning and the exhortation to strive to enter into his rest. God's word exposes us. God's word then heals us. Oh, friend, let God's word cut you, cut your hard heart like warm knife through, through, through butter. Let God's word come in and cut you. As Ken Hughes would say, will you yield to God's double-edged sword of sanctification and judgment? He cuts us so that we might die, and he cuts us again with his word that we might live. Yield to his word. Yield to his cutting. Friends, when God penned this word, he had us in mind. And when I was penning this sermon, I had someone in mind. I had all of you in mind, but I had one particular person in mind. And when I penned this, I, 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 I started to, to think, who can I symbolically give the word of God to that would represent the future of our church? And, and I think I found that person, and this may surprise him, but I'd like him to come forward right now. Tyler Krasinski, if you're in here, would you please come forward? Come on down, Tyler. Now, as Tyler comes down, I want you to, he's representing us all. This is, this is an illustration. Okay, 
um, he's representing us all. Tyler, just come on, just come on up here. I know it's uncomfortable for you, but all right. Um, Tyler, what I want to do is in a moment I'm going to give you this gift of God's Word. It's a, it's a, it's a new ESV study Bible. Uh, I know that you're graduating soon from high school. I know you're going to be going to college, buddy. We're very, very proud of you. Very proud of you. Um, you have been a faithful servant in this church. On a personal note, you've been a faithful servant to my son. You've been one of his best friends, and, and I've enjoyed having you over, Tyler, playing ping pong, goofing around. It's been great, buddy. But Tyler, the greatest gift that I can give you is this word right here. As you go to college, you'll read many books. You'll study. You're a smart guy. You'll be trained in a vocation that will enable you to support your family and to give to the church, and that's a good thing. But this is a better thing. This is the greatest book, the only book that can give you life, Tyler, the Bible. It's God's very word to you. This isn't just a word. This is God's word to you. And so as I give it to you, I want you to consider the power of God's word. I want you to consider the inescapability of his judgment. He will come and judge you according to this word. But what's wonderful is this word tells us that he provides a great high priest. Next week, you'll hear that, okay? This week, you'll be scared to death until next week. But you will hear that this week, okay? Next week. And, 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 th- and may this be the means. It's not bad to be scared for a week. Th- may this be the means and the motive, seriously, for you to strive to enter God's rest. I know you're a hard worker. You've, you've striven to do well in school, to care for your single mom, to, to be faithful in the church. Buddy, I honor you. You're a man. But there's a striving to enter God's rest that's by faith. That's the most important thing you'll ever do. For you and your family and the church, I pray it be this church for the rest of your life, but if it's not, whatever church God puts you in. So, I give you God's word. May it cut you in ways that will be uncomfortable but healing. And it will give you the power to strive to enter God's rest. Amen. All right, buddy. I love you, buddy. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your mercy upon me that many, many years ago, Your word spoke to me as a young man. Even when I read it foolishly, I I read it with my mind being altered by chemicals. I, I read it, Father, not seriously. But in your mercy, it changed me. It affected me. Like Mr. Thorpe, I may have been even been mocking you, but you saved me. Through your word, because your word speaks of Christ, your plan to give to me that rest that I forfeited through my disobedience. That one day I have to look forward to the glory and the honor to be with you, to rule and reign your creation, that portion that you assigned to me under your authority. And I'm so grateful. But I'm aware there are those in this church right now that wouldn't have that hope. And I pray for them. Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts. I pray right now you would cut through their hard hearts like a warm knife through butter and that you would change them, that they would strive to enter your rest. They would stop striving for the world or their own pleasure and they would begin striving, running that race for you, God. And those that are weary of running that race would continue running it. That those like, like I was this week, Father, who, who was, I was tempted to just give up and say, I can't do it. Lord, this word would help us, would be the power for us to get back in the race and strive by faith to enter the rest that we can never create but only receive from you.
Lord, I, I pray this with all of my heart. In Jesus' name. Oh, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. What we're going to do right now is, um, unfortunately, I, I've preached a little long this morning, so we really don't have time for ministry, but we're going to stand and we're going to sing. So I, I pray that don't lose this holy moment, friends. As we stand and sing, we may not be able to pray with you, but you seek God right now. Don't check out yet. Seek God. And the song we're going to sing is called Out of the Depths. It's a song, it's a song from Psalm 130. Let this be your cry to God. We'll sing it through once and then I'll come up and dismiss us. So let's sing that song, Out of the Depths.